thing about a question is this, right? Questions, I think questions are really, really interesting. Do you know that in Mark's gospel alone, Jesus asked 50 different questions? 50 questions. And why did Jesus ask questions? The reason he asked questions was because questions reveal our value, reveal our motives, reveal our intentions, reveal our loves. That's what questions do. Questions have a way of unlocking us that statements don't have. They have a power to get to us. I, I, it is my firm belief that even if a person is the biggest liar in the world, if you ask them a question, they will answer truthfully in their minds and in their hearts, though it may never come out of their mouths. They will always answer truthfully. What were you doing until now? Or what are, the, what are you doing out until this hour of the night? They will answer truthfully. What comes out of the mouth? Ignore it. But they've answered the question in their heart. It's important. Questions are really, really important. Like, I remember once being asked the question. I was there. Uh, my, my son, Robin, was our firstborn son. And he, he got sick about a week after he was born. And uh, keep it together, Mike. Uh, he got sick about a week after he was born. And he developed an infection that the doctor said could threaten his life. And so they took him to the hospital. And they had to put an IV drip into him. And in the process of putting an IV drip, some clever Trevor decided that the best place to put an IV drip into him was into his head. Sorry, last, last. Put an IV drip into his head. And so they tried to put this IV drip into a vein in his head. Like, I would love to slap that person in Jesus' name. Um, they decided to put it. And so I arrived at the hospital. Elma called me. I met Elma. We went down, downstairs to where the kids were. No, he wasn't that sick as it turns out, so thank God. But we, 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 we went... We went down and they were trying to put this IV thing into his head. Lads, I'm sorry, forgive me, I should just jump this story. They were trying to put this IV thing into his head. And I looked through the door and all I could see was my poor son screaming as they tried to put this needle into his head. Well, lads, I was absolutely gutted. I, I was broken hearted and I went down and I had to register him because they got him into hospital and a specialist came along. And the specialist had the needle into his leg in one minute flat. Hallelujah. But I went downstairs to register him in the hospital and I walked up to the counter and a very kind uh, nursing administration staff person looked at me and said, are you okay? Ah! I fell apart like a cheap deck chair right there and then. And all it was was a simple question. Are you okay? Are you okay? Because I was once asked in another situation, hey Michael, it was years ago, I was in Bible school. So he drops Bible school. I wasted some of my life in Bible school, okay? I just want to say that. I wasted some of my life. And this, this woman who was one of the administrators there, and in fairness, she had a good heart. She had an eye for me in that she wanted to keep to look after me. She... She said to me, hey, Michael, how are you? And I said, I'm grand, Wilma, thanks for asking. She said, oh, come on. How are you really? And I said, I'm really good, Wilma, thank you for asking. Inside, I was falling apart. I was in bits. I answered truthfully. Let me come to the punchline here on what I'm talking about when I talk about a good question. I want to look today at a good question that Jesus was asked. So this situation we're about to look at in a second is a situation where a good guy comes to the good teacher, Jesus, he asks a good question, and he gets a good answer. And all of this that happens in this situation is good. But I want you to place yourself 
into the story. The only way the narrative stories of the Bible work is if you put yourself into the story. Don't put yourself into the story as Jesus, okay? Don't, don't do that. But you can put yourself in as a disciple or the person or an onlooker at this situation. And that way the story comes to life. Questions of power. The English poet, he was an atheist, became a Christian from the 20th century. A guy called T.S. Eliot wrote some amazing Christian literature after he became a Christian. And in one of his books, or one of his, uh, one of his plays, is called Choruses from the Rock. He has this quote in one of, his, in, in one of these plays. This is what he says. He says, Oh my soul, be prepared for the coming of the stranger. Be prepared for him who knows how to ask questions. Because the ability to ask the right question at the right situation at the right time is a gift that can unlock our hearts, unlock our problems and unlock our trials. Are you with me? Yes. Jesus has an encounter with a guy. We read the story um, we read the story in three Gospels. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and all of the synoptic Gospels. I'm going to look at Mark's version of it. We're going to look at that in a second. But the prelude to that was that before this incident happens, not long before it, Jesus was speaking to his disciples. I talked about it last week. And he said, who do people say that I am? And then they gave some, some answers. And then he asked an important question. And I want to ask that question again. Who do you say I am? Jesus asks again today. Who do you say I am? Because who you say I am actually determines who you are. Who you say I am. If you say I'm just a good teacher, a moral leader, great. It doesn't change your life at all. But if you say that I am Messiah, if you say that I am Lord, if you say I am the Savior of the world, that changes everything. It changes everything. And so we get to this story, Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. Can we pray first before we, we do it? Would you stand with me and pray? Um, and the reason I pray is because I need the Lord. Amen. I don't know what you pray for, but that's what I pray. Can we pray? Would you raise your hands at me for a second if you're willing to pray? You don't, you, you don't have to. You can just nice and lower point. Father in heaven, we thank you for your living word, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, your word is the final authority in our lives. What you say is the final authority. I pray that as we look at this word together, you would speak to us. You would encourage us, you would challenge us, you would build us up. Lord, I pray that you would bless us. As we look at your word today, Lord, we are your servants. Speak, because we're listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people say, Amen. 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 Let's take our seats again, guys. This is how it begins, with a good question. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him. And fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What a question. Wow. Can you imagine going up to Jesus with this question? Like the most important question of all. Because it takes us past the terminus of our mortal lives. It means how long, you know, how do I get the life that lasts forever and ever, and ever, and ever, and ever. What a brilliant question. And he comes up and he addresses Jesus. 
Now, in, another, in the other versions of this gospel story, in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel, we learn two things that are important about this man that happen at the start of the story. One is that he's a rich man. He's got plenty. He's not short of a bob. And the other is that he's a ruler, most likely meaning a local ruler in a local synagogue or certainly a respected Jewish leader in some manner. And this is the man who comes running up to Jesus and he's as fast as he can, hits the knees, skids in the last couple of meters for effect like a soccer player after getting a goal, rises at Jesus' feet and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Mm. Wow, what a question. And bet you the disciples are going, I wish I'd made an entrance like that. <laughs> oh, wow, what an entrance to make. And so he kneels down and he asks this important question. And Jesus, of course, looks at him like he does in all those movies where he's really heavy. He looks at him and he answers his question and he says, what you call me good for? What, what? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. What, what, what? Like, my knees dirty, like, eternal life, eternal, what, what? It's like you meeting me on the stairs this morning and say, hi Michael, how are you? And I say, hang on a minute. What do you mean, hi? You mean like, hi? Or do you mean altitude high? Or do you mean like, hi, hello? And when you say, how are you? You mean like, internally, externally? Do you mean, how am I morally? I mean, how am I spiritually? How am I emotionally? Imagine some idiot did that to you. Go, get out of here. That's what you do. Oh boy, I said that again, didn't I? Anyway. <laughs> Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. What an answer to give him. To pull him on his grammar? Hello? Remember Jesus said, who do you say I am? His answer, good teacher. You with me? He doesn't recognize who Jesus is. So we get to the, the punchline. And Jesus says this to him. He says, do you know the commandments? You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Would any of the parents say amen? amen. Honor your father and your mother. He says, you know all the commandments? Like, before we take one step further, let me point something important out here. If anybody was to walk up to any of us in any situation who know the Lord, who've been Christians for any decent period of time, who know what the scripture says about salvation, none of us would give this answer. If somebody came up and said, what must I do to be saved? You wouldn't say, well, you know the commandments, don't murder, don't steal, be a good person in general, and you know you'll be fine. None of us would say that. None of us would say that. He comes up and he asks, what must I do? I remember, I remember seeing this question and asking the same question of myself when I was 18. 1986 was the year. Long time ago. If it's like the Ice Age, long time ago. Not very long time. Anyway, it's about, and I remember I was on a journey of faith. I wasn't a Christian yet. And I knew that I had committed what we call mortal sins. I knew I'd committed sins that were really bad sins. I didn't murder anybody in case you're wondering. But I didn't, I committed some really bad sins. And me and this other guy that I hung around with at the time, he was a friend of mine. He also was on a journey of faith. And one evening, while standing outside the front door of his home, he produces his Bible. He says, let me show you a verse from the book of Acts in the Bible. He says, you know how we're always thinking, what will we do? How can we be saved? How can we be forgiven? Read this, he said. So he shows me the story of the Philippian jailer and the story of Paul and Silas. They're in jail. There's an earthquake. The jailer comes in. There's a big panic. And the jailer says to Paul and Silas, sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
And Paul's response, you know the commandments. No, he didn't say that. He said, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Hallelujah. It was the best news I had ever heard. The best thing that I'd ever read in all of my life. That all I had to do, all, it was repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and my soul was saved. Hallelujah. But that's not the answer that Jesus gives here. Jesus gives him a much more structured answer. He names some of the commandments. In fact, he names five of the commandments and he leaves five commandments up. But we might get that in a second if God spares us and we have the time. But look at the man's response. He says, teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. I've kept all the commandments, Lord. I've kept all the ones that you named. Now, everybody knew, every Jew knew, that nobody kept the law to perfection. But they did try, and he obviously had made a genuine effort to obey the law of God. He wasn't, he wasn't bluffing in this one. But I think there's a bigger picture going on here. I think that this guy is trying to make an impression on the good teacher, Jesus. He recognizes this is a good man. He's a guy that we should be in with. He probably sees his power, saw him do a miracle, and then shows up and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? By the big show on the knees and the big pleading, because rich people did not run. Their servants ran, but the rich people didn't run. And the rich people didn't get on their knees in front of some country rabbi. They got on their knees maybe before Caesar and maybe before Herod, but not before any other living human being. And he certainly didn't do that. And so this guy comes along and they never made the, the claim that they had kept all of the commandments all their lives. Nobody would make that claim. And so we have this guy who comes with mixed motives like the rest of us. Can I get an amen? Amen. Mm, okay, we won't talk about that too much. With mixed motives, with mixed stuff going on in his soul, he wants to make a good impression, but he's also sincere. I just love the next line. It says, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Amen. He looked at him and he loved him. Can I say to you this morning, Jesus looks at you in the same way. Amen. He looks at you and he loves you. Amen. And he loves you. And if you want to know how much he, he loved you, he loved you this much. He demonstrated it on the cross. That's how much he loved you. But in this situation, Jesus, and, his, and the only one to record it is Mark. And Mark is considered to be Peter's testimony, the first gospel written. And so here, obviously, Peter saw this incident, reported to Mark, because Mark has very, very few details in Mark. But this detail he picks up on, the way that Jesus looked at this rich young man on his knees in front of him. He looked at him and he loved him. And do you know why he looked at him and he loved him? Because the old saying really is true. God loves a tryer. He loves somebody who's trying. He loves the idea that this guy wanted to make a good impression. He loves the guy that this, the idea that this guy wanted to obey the law. He loves the idea that this guy wanted to honor God. And yet he could see right through the big show that the guy had just put on. He looked at him and he loved him and he loved him enough to tell him the truth of his situation. And he gave him an answer. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. Ooh. What? Go, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. 
If you really want to know what it is that's missing in your life, this is what's missing, said Jesus. This is the one thing that you lack, the one thing that you're missing. And like the way he says, there's one thing you're missing, and then he actually says three things. Go and sell your possessions, give them to the poor, and then come and follow me. So one thing is not one thing, it's kind of three things. Like, one thing you lack, go and sell. No, no, two things you lack, go sell and give to the poor. No, no, three things you lack, go sell, give to the poor, and then come and follow me. But the whole picture was the same. And this is the only person in the, before you start shifting in your seat, getting uncomfortable, this is the only person recorded in the scriptures in any conversation with Jesus to whom Jesus said this. He was the only person, meaning that his instruction to this man in terms of his liver possessions is not universal but unique. Are you with me? Are you with me? Okay, you can relax. You can take, you can take a deep breath. No. He's also unique in another way. In actual fact, he's the only person to whom this Jesus said, and the next thing, he's also unique in. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. He is the only person recorded in the scriptures who comes to Jesus in pursuit of salvation and goes away sad. Almost everyone else who comes to Jesus goes away rejoicing. They're healed, they're forgiven. They're raised from the dead. Their children are healed. They're delivered. Whatever. They go away rejoicing because of what Jesus has done and Jesus has said. But this is the only man for whom it's recorded. He went away sad. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And I can just imagine if I was a disciple of Jesus. Like if this happened nowadays, we'd say, hang on a minute, don't go away. No, 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 no. Like, I mean, Jesus is speaking metaphorically. And no, he doesn't really mean your wealth. I mean, what he means is all the stuff. No, no, no. We would probably go, no, no, hang on. I say, Jesus, one second. We, we, we could use this guy. He's loaded. I mean, he could help the whole project. We would never let him go away sad like that. You know that if this guy came into an Irish church, we'd go, no, no, you're grand, you're grand, you're grand, you're grand. No, there's no need to be upset now. You can work this out over a period of time. Everything will be fine. You've all of your life to figure this one out. You're grand, whatever his name was. Come back in, come back in, come back in. Because we don't like to send people away sad. But Jesus wasn't that bothered at sending this man away sad. Not that he was cold. He was profoundly compassionate. Profoundly empathetic to this man and to this situation. And he summed it up in this way. Jesus said, he looked around and he said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. How hard it is for those rich people to get into the kingdom of God. But not me. I'm poor. I can get into the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. Poverty is such a blessing. Hallelujah. Oh, yeah, Jesus. Suck it to those rich guys. That's what you do. You know, you see a rich guy going, Jesus is out to get you. <laughs> That's what's going on. Because Jesus was a communist, wasn't he? And he loved kind of sorting out the rich people. I'm not lit. If anybody says Michael, if anybody clips that and says, and, and it puts up on your social media feed, Michael saying Jesus was a communist, I'll, I'll come around to your house, I promise. Anyway, we love it when the rich get sucked. We give it to the rich. Tax the rich. We should take more taxes from the rich. What's the problem in this country? Get the rich. <laughs> we'll sort out the rich. But I have bad news for you. If you're in that mood, you are rich. Amen. Rich beyond your wildest imagine. You are rich. I am rich. Rich beyond imagining. Do you know how many people had flushing toilets back in Jesus' day? 
Mm. Not many. Do you know about half of the world's population today don't have a flushing toilet? Let's close in prayer. Do you know that half the world's population they don't have running water in their homes? Or in their favelas? Or wherever it is that they live? They have no running water? We are rich, rich beyond our imagining. So we go, yeah, Lord, stick it to the rich. It's fantastic. Like I can see people go, yeah, we need to sort out the rich. I love the, like the, all Jesus stories, the rich man and Lazarus. Yeah, sort out the rich. We're the rich. Do you know what I did? I did during the week, I did an experiment. I've done this before, just for fun. And I, I looked on one of these websites. There's loads of websites. You can look it up. Don't look it up now, but look it up later. They say, how rich am I? Or where do we stand in terms of the world's richest people, right? So I can tell you now, right here, right now, this morning, that there there are many people inside in this room now who are within the world's top 1% richest people. The top 1% richest people in the world. Some of them are sitting in here right now. But I looked up my wealth, my wealth. I looked up, I did it by household income, and I looked mine, and my household income isn't, you know, our household income isn't that great compared to some people's household income, but I looked it up, and do you know where we turned out to be? We are such losers, we ended up only in the tops, the top 1.3 of the world's richest per per percent of people, only 1.3%, like, I was so disappointed, I looked and said, how come I... How come I can't be richer than 99% rather than 98.7% of the world's richest people? Why can't I be in that group? We're all rich. Rich beyond imagining. But the curious thing about our riches is they, they get inside our heads. Whatever form those riches take. You see, we think rich is all about things and all about stuff. But I tell you, brothers and sisters, we can be rich in our attitudes towards ourselves. Rich in our attitudes towards others. We can be rich full of our own pride. We can be rich full of our own self-will. We can be rich full of our own identity. We can be rich. And that's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the poverty of spirit. You've got to compare this rich man who comes and throws himself on the knees and does a big show. And you compare him to Peter. When Peter meets Jesus for the first time, Jesus gives him the miraculous catch of fish. And Peter, it says, seeing the fish, he ran to Jesus and fell on his knees. And he said, Lord, go away from me because I'm a sinful man. That's real poverty of spirit. That's the spirit that he wants. When Jesus just, if you read the story in Luke's gospel, the previous chapter, Jesus tells the story of the rich man, or the, sorry, forgive me, the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee goes to the front of the temple and he says, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like everyone else. I, I, I fast three times a week and I tithe all of my income. And then the man, the other guy, the bad guy, the robber, the thief, the tax collector at the back, he bangs his breast, bows his head and says, Lord, have mercy on me because I am a sinner. Jesus said it was he who walked away justified. The one who recognized he was a sinner. Let me take it one click further in the next chapter when you read it in Luke's gospel. We get to the story of Zacchaeus. And in the story of Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus was rich. But he was also rotten. He was rich and he was rotten and he was a thief and he was a fraudster. And that was well known about him. But when Jesus came and showed him grace, he stood up and he said, Lord, right now here, without ever being prompted, he said, I'd give away half of all of my possessions. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay them back four times as much. To which Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. Because he was able to let it go. He was able to drop it. He recognized the thing that was of most value. You with me? 
He recognized when he was with Jesus, he had a thing that was of much more value than any earthly wealth could possibly give him. You see, Jesus said to him, there is, how many things? One thing that you lack. And the curious thing is that what he lacked was not actually a thing. The thing that he lacked was not actually a thing. Because the most important things in life, well, they're not things, are they? One thing he lacked. He didn't lack, and it wasn't one more thing. You see, sometimes when we, we, we can hear God's word, or we, we, we may begin to believe that, oh yeah, well, I need to add this extra thing to my life. I need to have more spiritual discipline. I need to, you know, read the Bible more often. You do, you do, you do. It's all very good stuff. But he, say, he says, you, I need to add all this stuff. But what you keep it, what we're doing is we're adding one more thing to all the other things that we have. He didn't lack one thing. He lacked everything. And that everything was Jesus Christ. Amen. He lacked that Jesus Christ. Because the one thing he lacked was to see his values and his priorities reordered in kingdom priorities and in kingdom values. Are you with me so far? Amen. I know really, are you with me? Okay, good stuff. Because this is what the Scottish writer, the Scottish writer, uh, George MacDonald, he lived in the 1800s. He wrote this about the power or the effect of things in our lives. He said, if it be things that slay you, if I say it in Scottish accent, if it be things that slay you, what matter if there are things you have or things you have not? And for some reason, George MacDonald just moved to Belfast. Anyway, <laughs> if it be things that slay you, what matter if they be things you have or things you have not? What's the last commandment? One of the ones that Jesus didn't name. You shall not covet your neighbor's goods, mm-hmm. your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's manservant or his maidservant. Or any of his goods, you shall not covet them. Because if it's things that are important to you, it doesn't matter whether you have them or not. I was walking yesterday with that man. As we were walking, we were walking along this road, and up the road came the biggest Porsche I'd ever seen. A Porsche is a car, in case you're wondering, a big sports car. This massive Porsche drove past me. And the guy looked out the window at me and kind of went, <laughs> to which I thought, if I had one of those, I'd drive past going, two. I looked at it, what a beautiful car. I'd love that car. And for a moment I coveted that man's car. I sinned. I didn't want not him to. He can have one too. We can both have one. Hallelujah. But if it's things that are on you, it doesn't matter whether you have them or you don't. If money is the most important thing to you in the world, it doesn't matter if you have 10 million or 10 euros. It's the same place and the same role in the heart of the person. Are you with me? This is what Jesus said. He said, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Amen. You will find it. If you give up your life. Now we think, oh, I'll give up my life. Give up all my freedoms. And give up all my rights to be the person that I am. And my rights to be like Invictus. I am the master of my own soul. I am my son. Uh, I, I, if you give all this up. But you know what? I've spoken to thousands of people over the last few decades since I became a Christian. And the one thing I noticed that's fairly consistent in most people's lives, that most people's lives have in them anxiety and fear and worry and anger and lust and war and regret and trouble and perplexity. 
They have mental issues sometimes, psychological issues, I should say, psychological issues. They have troubles from their past. They have hurts and they have wounds that they're carrying around. They have bruises. They have prejudices. They've got the whole lot carrying around. And it makes me think, what is so good about your life that you're clinging to it? Let it down for Jesus. Let down your life. Let it down. Lose your life for his sake. Not just generally lose your life, but for his sake. And you will find your life. And if you're here today and you've come in with anxieties or worries or hatred or unforgiveness, drop it and cling to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. Don't cling to your life. Cling to Jesus. That's what I say to you this morning. You see, Jesus is the most important thing. The most important person who's ever lived and the most important thing in the life of the Christian. And unless he is, then he's not important at all. What do you mean? He's a good teacher. Yeah, he might be a good moral teacher. Here's what St. Augustine. I say St. Augustine because I'm a Catholic background, but if you're from a Protestant background, Augustine of Hippo, it doesn't matter. This is what he said. He said, Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. Unless he's valued above all. You see, he won't have the third place on the rostrum of your life. He won't have the bottom step. He will have the top step or he'll have no step at all. That's the truth of it. If we don't value him above all, we're not valuing him at all. Because we're not giving to him the place that he said he was rightfully due as the way, the truth and the life. Either Jesus is and was who he said he was or he was a lunatic or a liar or worse. You decide. But Christ is not valued at all unless he's valued above all. So let me ask you a question. Let me ask you the question that Jesus asked. And it's a question that I believe God wants to ask many of us. I know it certainly is a question that I've had to ask many times in my life. When Jesus had this young man kneeling before him, asking the question, Jesus asked him first, Why do you call me good? And that's what Jesus wants to ask you today. Why do you call me good? Am I good because everything in your life worked out the way you thought it would work out? Am I good because you have no troubles and trials? You have no lack and no anxieties and no worries? Am I good because I have blessed your life? Is that the only reason that I am good? Why do you call me good? Because I think at the heart of that question for us as Christians, there may be, I suspect, a superstitious belief. Now when you say superstitious belief, Mike, I know you're thinking, black cat crossed my path. Don't walk under a ladder, two magpies in the back garden, all that nonsense superstitious stuff. My, my, my least favorite one is if you break a mirror, you get seven days bad luck. I work for a glass company. I cut mirrors all the time. I'm going to have bad luck the rest of my days based on the number of mirrors I'm after breaking. What nonsense. That's not the superstition I'm talking about, however. I think there's another superstition. And it's a superstition that the enemy sometimes cultivates in our hearts and in our souls. And it's this. You know, the very first thing that the enemy whispered in Eve's ear was, has God really said? The first question that he raised was, is God really good? He's holding out on you. That's what he's doing. And sometimes when things don't work out in our lives, we begin to say, what have I done wrong? That's not a question of faith. 
What have I done wrong means that your faith and the outworking of God's plan and purpose in your life is all done to you. It is not all done to you. It's up to him. And faith says, Lord, this isn't working out in my life. But you know what? You're still good. You'll bring the best out of it. You'll bring the best out of it. Here's what Paul writes, and I know you're sick of seeing this verse, I've used it loads of times, but I'm going to put it up in here. Paul writes to the Roman Christians who were in real trouble, who actually had real trials and troubles, and he said this to them. He said, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. We know that God causes everything to... You mean God caused my son being sick and in hospital to work for my good? Yes, is the answer. Are you telling me, Lord, that when I lost my job or when that door closed or when that relationship fell apart, that you are actually going to work it out for good? Yes, is the answer. Yes, is the answer. He causes all things to work together for the good for those who love God. It isn't, in a, it isn't a universal plan. You see, some people, and people have said it to me before on loads of occasions, they say to me, ah, well, you know what it's like. Everything happens for a reason. That's nonsense. It's not true. Everything doesn't happen for a reason. But I can tell you what, God can cause all the things that happen to you in your life to work together for your good so long as you love him. Are you with me? And so therefore we can go into every day and we can go into every disappointment and we can go into every delay and we can go into every distraction in our lives and say, you know what, it's okay, God's in control. He's going to work it out for my good because I love him and he knows that I will do what he wants me to do. That's how we know that God works in the for the good. Let me move towards a close, if I may. Here's the, the, the Christian writer A.W. Tozer said this. He said, with the goodness of God to desire our highest welfare, the wisdom of God to plan it, and the power of God to achieve it, what do we lack? What more could we possibly need if we have the goodness of God to, for our, to desire the best for us, we have the wisdom of God to plan the best for us, and we have the power of God to achieve the best for us. What do we lack, brothers and sisters? We lack nothing. If we have Jesus, we have everything. He who has God and everything else is no better off than the person who has God and nothing else. Because he is the thing of most value. But when I want to look at our lives for a second and ask you, why do you call me good? And we say, why do you call me good? I love the answer given. I like the, the approach to worship by an English worship leader called Tim Hughes. And he says this. He says, worship is our response to God for who he is. And he is good. Can I get an amen? amen. God is good. How often? Oh. All the time. He said, our, worship is our response to God for who he is and what he has done in our lives. We recognize he has done good in our lives. And we say, yes, I see the goodness of God because that situation which I thought would never be solved has been solved. That desire that, that I thought I would never overcome has been overcome. That breakthrough I thought would never happen has happened. And so I know God is good because he's allowed these things to happen. If you read your Bible, if you look the book at the Psalms, there's 150 Psalms in there. And in broad categories, every single one of those Psalms will fall into this category. We worship God because of who he is and what he's done in our lives. Shine. That's it. We don't have to make it any more complicated than that. And I want to quote one of those Psalms as we come to a close this morning. And I want us to pray about the goodness of God, the wisdom of God, and the power of God in our lives. Would you be with me in a prayer on that one? And we see where, where we'll go with that in a second. Here's what the Psalmist David wrote. 
I love this. He writes Psalm 23, perhaps his, perhaps his best known psalm. Perhaps the psalm more known than any other of the psalms. Psalm 23, the shepherd psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not. Oh. Hallelujah. Do we believe it? Yes. But the last verse of that psalm, the last verse of that song says this. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. Hallelujah. They'll follow me all the days of my life. That's what they'll do. And I mightn't see it at the time, but they'll follow me. I'll tell you that. And anybody, and you know, but David is supposed to have written this somewhere near the end of his life. Because he had experienced the goodness of God in the land of the living. He had seen God's goodness. But that didn't mean he had no troubles. It didn't mean he had no trials. It didn't mean he didn't have disappointments. It didn't mean he didn't have distractions or doubts or defeats. He had plenty of them. But he knew this when he looked back over his shoulder. He could see the golden thread of God's goodness working its way through his life. And if you look over your shoulder today, just look over your shoulder, because how do you see what's following you? You look back, hello? You want to see what's following you? If John is following me, I hope John never follows me, but if John is following me, I look back over my shoulder and I can see that he's following me. And so when David looked back over his shoulder, and I hope for many of us here today, I stand as one who can say, I look over my shoulder and I see the golden thread of the goodness of God all over my life. What about you? Do you see it, brothers and sisters? Do you say, will you stand with me if you see it? If you see the goodness of God, that golden thread working through your life, doesn't mean everything is worked out, but everything is going to be worked out. Let me finish with this one verse before we sing. This last verse before we sing, also from the Psalms. David, write, David writes this. You see, no matter how much I describe to you what the goodness of God is like, no matter how, how much I describe to you what it's like to have a faith and walk with Jesus for 35 years, 37, whatever number of years I'm after walking with God, no matter how, way, how many ways I describe it, you will never know it until you taste and experience it yourself. You know what I'm saying? I could be describing the taste of ice cream all day, but until you taste it, you'll never really know. And that's why the psalmist wrote this. He said, taste and see that the Lord is good. And he finishes it off by saying, blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Lord, we take refuge in you today. We take refuge in you, not because we're great, but because you are good. That's why we take refuge in him.